This episode of No Meat Athlete Radio is brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef's vegan and vegetarian recipes are high in plant proteins and rich in omega-3s. Go to greenchef.com slash nomeat125 and use code nomeat125 to get $125 off, including free shipping. This episode is also brought to you by Everly Well. Everly Well is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash nomeat. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Nomeat Athlete Radio. All right, Doug, I think we are five weeks away from the first ever Golden Gate Spartan Trail Classic, the race that we have partnered with Spartan on to do the, the aid station foods and things so that our plant bikes will be there. And it's a 100% vegan race, 100% plant-based race. Um, but as I said last week, I think my wife at Aaron, she was going to run her first 50K there, yep. but uh, she's had these falling issues and she still has not really gotten over, I guess it's a fear of falling, but also just hasn't quite convinced herself that she's not going to fall again with the, the work she's been doing. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, we were, we were perusing other ultras that she could do as an alternative. Um, I mean, we'll still be out there. I'll still be running at least the half marathon. Not sure if I'll try to do more, but um, anyway, we found a 50K and it's it's nearby and it's in the hometown, former hometown of Andre the Giant, the, uh, <laughs> the wrestler. <laughs> that was the claim to fame of this little, this little town. I Is should, it the Andre the, the Giant 50K? No, it's not even named after him. There's no, unless you Google the name of the town because you don't know where it is, uh, you would never find the little Wikipedia article that says it's claim to fame. It's, that was where he made his home. That is that is hilarious it's and, and awesome. It's so, the Derby. so, and it's an oh, it's what? It's, it's, it's Eller. I think it's Ellerby. I don't know how to say it. E L L E R B E. Uh, it's fifty miles away, or so from Charlotte. And okay. The race is called the Derby. Just a little loop, fifty uh, k. And on road or on? Yeah, road like uh, gravel and paved road. So it's my okay. wife will have no likely have no falling issues, and I don't know if I'll do a loop or two or something maybe that day if I can. Um, well, that's also a looking, awesome. I also found out there's a Spartan race in North Carolina. I'm sorry, Spartan. there is a Spartan race actually. Um, but yeah, well, there's also, uh, there's like another trail classic. Is, it, is that the one? Yeah. There was one recently in Nashville or right okay. outside Nashville. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, there's a, uh, a bad water race. What I meant to say. Yeah. Cape fear. You know that one? Yeah, yeah. It's like 50K or 50 mile, uh-huh. and you run most of it on the beach. I think that's yep. kind of the hard part is that it's beach and windy and all that. Uh, yeah, that kind of piqued my interest, but not for this not for this coming year, but maybe one day. Well, that's exciting for, for Aaron. That's really exciting. It is. I was a relief to find that because she's, she's had is it is it soon? Is it going to fit her training cycle? It's, the week, it's the week after Spartan, so it's oh. pretty perfect. Wait, isn't that Thanksgiving? Yes, Thanksgiving weekend. It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Mm. Well, that is awesome. Congratulations, yeah. Yeah, sir. Yeah, it works out. I look forward to hearing how that goes. Unfortunately, I have some bad news. I have Uh-oh. some, really, some heartbreaking, news heartbreaking news that I know that, you know, the legions of people who are, are, who are running the Spartan race are going to be just wildly disappointed. I've heard a lot of people who were going to it just because you're going to be there. Was, I know. And that was the primary reason. That was their reason. And yeah, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do because unfortunately I had to make the call to, uh, to bow out of the race this year. We've been talking it up. I've been honestly incredibly excited about the whole event and the whole everything going out there and seeing people and, and running the running the race itself. Uh, but it just uh, with with everything else we have going on that week and the week the next week with Nomad Athlete and, and Compliment, yeah. uh, just fortunately isn't going to work out for me to 
take that trip. So I'm not going to go. You're still going to go. Most of the team is still going to go. Um, and so if, if you're a fan of Nomad Athlete, then the real star of the show, Matt Frazier and his wife, <laughs> his wife will be there. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I'm sad. It's, it would have been cool to meet, to meet some people. And, and we know at least, and at least a few people are, are going because of, uh, because of Nomad Athlete's involvement. And um, it would have been fun to see them. Yes, would have been fun. Um, would have been would have been a good team event too because a lot of, I haven't met a lot of the people on our team in person yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think we have like fourteen people now or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch will not be going for the same reasons you're not with with work stuff going on. Uh, but it'll still be a good time. I'll still be out there um, and still running and should be should be a good time. So really looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I have I have a race coming up in a couple of weeks. That's right. I knew that. Out, I think two and a half weeks. Got into that somehow. And that race is what? 50K? 50K okay. down at uh, Lake James near mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fontaflora 50K. Oh, I know that one in Nebo. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I've been to Nebo a little bit. Cool. You've been to the race? No, I've been to Nebo. I, I, oh, my okay. dad knows a guy who lives there and we've gone to his house. Okay. Yeah. Kind of it's, uh, of yeah so I'm, I'm really, I'm quite looking forward to this race. I think it'll be a good way to, it'll be my first race. Uh, my last race was the, was like two weeks before everything shut down in February uh-huh. of 20, what was, was that, that, 2019? Was that Mount Mitchell? That was Mount Mitchell, yep. I, I still have a very vivid memory of sitting in the pre-race briefing the night before with like, you know, several hundred people crammed into a room and people talking about uh, that crazy virus that was going yeah. on over in China. And then like two weeks later, everything changed and, uh, and, and I haven't run a race since. So uh, this will be my first race back and I'm just super excited to, uh, to push myself to, with 50K because that'll feel like a really long way for me right now. Um, and, and that'll be fun. But I did, I did, right. uh, Good. I, I did, I did a fun training run I'll tell you about last weekend. Okay, make it quick because our guest has arrived. Oh, our guest has arrived. Guest well then no, patiently. let's not, uh, let's not bother. <laughs> I was trying to kill time. Okay. We'll do an intro, intro of next show. There you go. All right. All right. Here comes the guest. Okay. Who's it going to be? Hey. Actually, two guests, Doug. Whoa. <laughs> Even so better. Is... Hey, guys. <laughs> Did you know Robbie and Cyrus? I feel like the world knows Robbie and Cyrus. I don't know if you know them, Doug. Sure. Well, I've never met them. Hey, how you guys doing? Hey. How's it going? Okay. Robbie's disappeared temporarily. How's guys, it going? It's great to be here. Uh, Doug. Yeah. Great nice to meet you. you. Nice to meet you as well. This is great. What's up? What's up? What's up? Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you, Doug. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Robbie and Cyrus uh, are the guys behind Mastering Diabetes, uh, which is a New York Times bestselling book. And they were kind of mentors of Robert and me in, in the process of becoming New York Times bestselling authors. Uh, they told us, you know, I mean, I think when we were trying to choose an agent for this book, uh, our agent ended up referring us to Robbie and Cyrus and said, Hey, these are clients of mine. And we had a big conversation. That's when I met you guys, I think. Uh, so really from the very beginning, you guys were, were there and helping us do it. And, uh, and we did, and it was a success and you guys were immensely supportive. So uh, I'm very grateful and excited to have you on. Cause I can't believe we haven't had you on the podcast yet. It's great to be here, Matt. And uh, congratulations. Um, you guys wrote an incredible book. And it's helping a lot of people. So kudos to what you guys are doing and, and will continue to do for many, many years to come. Yes, hope so, for sure. So anyway, um, we've not, I don't think we've done the, the surprise guest format with two guests ever. So I don't know how, I hope Zoom holds up well enough with, uh, with Claudia, but it seems like it, seems like it will. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't even think we've had an episode, Doug, where we've talked about diabetes very much. I must admit, diabetes is kind of uh, a blind spot of mine. It's just like, it's yeah. never really impacted me or anyone that I know well. Um, or, or if it has, it hasn't been like a public thing that I was involved in or anything. So I'm kind of curious about like the 101 of that stuff. But I also want to talk to you guys about, um, you know, blood sugar in general, because that's something that maybe even if diabetes, I'm sure it affects a lot of people in our audience, but uh, maybe not directly too many of them, but, but perhaps it does. But I think blood sugar uh, and the idea of like, you know, the role that sugar in general plays um, in a healthy diet, especially for athletes. I think that kind of stuff is super interesting. So, uh, we'd love to talk to you guys about that. And then, uh, of course we'll hit on, hit on your summit, which I, what's it called? The blood sugar revolution, blood sugar revolution summit. Yep. Yes. It's, so that's uh, coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can definitely get into that as well, but, uh, yeah, I guess why don't you get, to, I mean, you guys are both type one diabetics. Is that correct? That is correct. So I'm not, I mean, I kind of know the difference between type one and type two, but honestly, if I had a test and I had, it wasn't multiple choice, I would be really, really, I'd do horribly. <laughs> so I'd like to have the one-on-one on, uh, on diabetes. What's type one, what's type two. And, uh, you know, just your stories too. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, uh, there's many versions, the different flavors of diabetes. Uh, you know, it used to be that there was just type one and type two diabetes. Uh, but then over the course of time, as research has gotten more involved in learning about the different pathophysiology of diabetes, um, a number of different, what I refer to as flavors have arised. So there's type one diabetes, which is what Robbie and I have. Then there's type 1.5 diabetes. Then there's pre-diabetes, there's type two diabetes, and there's gestational diabetes. So that's sort of like five different classes of diabetes. And then there's this new version of diabetes, which is referred to as type three diabetes, which is actually cognitive decline or Alzheimer's. Huh. And so um, it's, uh, you know, Diabetes is sort of like expanding as a, as a collection of symptoms and it's affecting, you know, researchers are finding that it affects different, uh, different organ systems um, at different ages. And so that's why it's becoming a little bit more complex. But to simplify things, there's basically two types of diabetes if you really want to like classify them into two different categories. The first category is autoimmune and the second category is not autoimmune. All right. So autoimmune basically means that your immune system it has been, you know, tricked or coerced or programmed into mounting an attack to your own beta cells, which manufacture and secrete insulin inside of your pancreas. And when that happens, then your insulin production uh, begins to get compromised. So as you lose the ability to manufacture and secrete insulin, then your blood glucose starts to rise. And that right there is a telltale sign of developing an autoimmune reaction, right? So type 1 diabetes is autoimmune. Uh, Type 1.5 diabetes is also autoimmune. Now, um, to keep things relatively straightforward, type 1 is is an autoimmune version of diabetes in which some collection of factors has sort of hijacked your immune system into creating this problem and, um, and, and killing the beta cells inside of your pancreas. What causes it? Researchers don't really know the answer to that question. Um, we know that there's an association between people who drink cow's milk at a young age and or babies who are not breastfed for a significant amount of time and the development of type 1 diabetes. We also know that there's certain viruses, in particular, there's one called the Coxsackie virus, which um, can increase your risk for the development of type 1 diabetes as well. And now there's also research that shows that there's a particular mycobacterium in food called MAP. And MAP, whether it's found in meat or whether it's found in dairy products, can also raise your risk for type 1 diabetes, right? So there's this whole host of different things which could create type 1 diabetes. And if it does happen, then you get what Robbie and I have, which is 
you, your blood glucose uh, becomes extremely high in a very short window of time. Uh, I found out because I was in college, I was 22 years old, which is relatively late. Type one is usually diagnosed when you're like, you know, three years old, five years old, 12 years old, somewhere sort of in adolescence. And um, I got it when I was in 22. And um, all of a sudden I checked my blood glucose or sorry, I, I felt, I felt terrible. I mean, I was urinating frequently. I had no energy and uh, I just could not concentrate. So I ended up checking myself in to go to uh, the hospital. And when I was there, they were like, oh my Lord, your blood glucose is so high. You are in this thing called the DKA, which is a sort of like emergency state at which point type one diabetes is like setting in. Mm. Right. And so when your blood glucose is that high, the only thing that, that, um, you know, medical professionals know how to do at that moment in time is to basically give you IV fluid and then give you insulin to try and lower your blood glucose value. Over the course of time, they end up finding out, you know, a, a bunch of other things about your, um, your endocrine system. And then they, you know, fully can classify you with type one diabetes. But the idea here is that if you get an autoimmune diagnosis, it generally sets in under the age of 30. It's an autoimmune reaction and it, it forces you to have to inject insulin. There's no other substitute. You have to inject insulin. And until there's some type of therapy or some type of like magical um, operation, if you will, that can like restore beta cell product or insulin production, um, you're going to be insulin dependent the rest of your life, right? So it can be a tough diagnosis because it's like, imagine if all of a sudden you woke up one day and you were like, huh, I don't really feel that well. I feel low energy. And why, why am I so thirsty? And why am I urinating, you know, um, every 30 minutes? That doesn't make sense. You go to the doctor, the doctor says, hey, you have type one diabetes. Oh, by the way, you have to inject insulin three to six times a day, every single day for the rest of your life. Like the, mm -hmm. the mental overload that happens in that moment is just like, it's, it's hard to describe in words, right? But that's what happens to people with type one. Now- So that's you. So you have to do that. You have to, do, you have to inject three times a day or more for the Yeah, so you life. basically have to inject when you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So mm -hmm. that's called like mealtime, what's referred to as mealtime bolusing. Okay. And then there's also a, a long, another insulin that you have to take as well, which is a sort of like drip irrigation, long acting insulin. You inject that once a day and that's kind of in the background the entire time, just, you know, working to make sure that your blood glucose um, is regulated um, independent of the food that you choose to put in your body. Gotcha. And then, and then what is, what's the role of diet then in, in managing it? Like why, why eat a plant-based diet at that point to try to like, you know, I guess, I guess if you've got to do that anyway. Yep. What do you get by managing with diet? Yeah, like what's the that advantage of right. using a plant-based diet versus a ketogenic diet or some other low-carbohydrate diet? Okay. Or managing at all. Like what, like what if you don't manage, but you just do the injections? Okay, very good question. Very good question. So you, you kind of have a choice. Whether you're living with type 1 diabetes, whether you're non-diabetic, whether you have heart disease, whether you have kidney disease, whether you're totally healthy, every single human being has a choice of what they put into their mouth, right? And you can choose to eat uh, you know, the standard American diet if you want. You can choose to eat fried foods and packaged foods if you want. You can choose to eat a low carbohydrate diet if you want. You can choose to eat a plant-based diet if you want. And there's pros and cons to every single approach, right? Um, we know, you know, from like ample research and from you know, paying attention to experts over the course of time, that the standard American diet is kind of a walking disaster. And that regardless of whether you have a pre-existing condition or not, if you eat the standard American diet, chances are you're likely to develop some type of chronic disease over the course of time, right? Now, in the world of type one diabetes in particular, or the world of diabetes in general, there's sort of like, people are sort of 
being funneled into two, one of two different paths. Path number one is the low carbohydrate diet and path number two is the plant-based diet. And um, the low carbohydrate messaging is really strong, like unbelievably strong. And so when you're diagnosed with any form of diabetes, whether it's type one, 1.5 gestational, you name it, the medical institution and, and everybody else on the internet is telling you, eat a low carb diet, low carb, low carb, low carb, low carb, low carb, because that's the way you control your blood sugar. That's what you do. Right. And so most people, did my video just freeze? It did a while ago, but it's yeah. okay. we can, we can just work around them now. All right. Switch camera. Hey, now it's back. Now okay. So, so what most people do is they uh, receive this messaging and they're like, oh, okay, a low carb diet is the way to go because carbohydrates are bad for me. Carbohydrates are going to make me fat. They're going to make me more diabetic. They're going to cause my blood sugar to go higher. So then they basically avoid carbohydrates at all costs. So what that, what that leads them to do is stop eating or reduce their intake of things like fruits and potatoes and whole grains and legumes. And instead they eat more white meat, red meat, fish, chicken, dairy products, oils, and, you know, avocados, nuts, and seeds, because those are all low carb foods, right? So what people discover in a short period of time is that as soon as they do that, their blood glucose actually comes down and it's very controllable. So they're like, okay, cool. I'm eating these low carb foods. My glucose is controllable. My what's referred to as your A1C value, which is a sort of like long-term marker of your blood glucose health. That number comes down. Fantastic. Oh, hey, I lost a little bit of weight. That's even better, right? My blood pressure's down. My triglyceride levels are down. Fantastic, right? So on a piece of paper, a low carbohydrate diet often leads to good short-term results. But what we find, what the research shows, and what we've also found with working with more than 10,000 people over the course of time is that even if the, the results look good in the short term, even if your glucose is controllable, even if your insulin use went down, even if you lost weight and your blood pressure came down and your triglycerides came down, Oftentimes what happens is that over the course of time, call it a year, two years, three years, people who eat these low carbohydrate diets end up with other symptoms. They end up with other problems. And these other problems become louder and more problematic than diabetes was in the first place. And these other problems include things like impaired digestion, low energy. Sometimes people lose weight initially and then they start gaining weight again. They, their blood pressure comes down and then their blood pressure goes back up. Their triglycerides come down, their triglycerides go up. Their cholesterol comes down, their cholesterol goes back up again. And so they, they see that like over the course of time, they're like, wait a minute, it worked at the beginning and now it doesn't work anymore. And, and I feel terrible, what is going on? And at that point, we start to educate people. We're like, hey, listen, a low carbohydrate diet actually is causing a lot of these problems because what a low carbohydrate, doing, what a low carbohydrate diet is doing is it's it's sort of masking the symptoms of high blood glucose, if you will, but it's creating a metabolic revolution and a metabolic disaster inside of you. It's, in, it's creating more insulin resistance inside of your liver. It's creating more insulin resistance inside of your muscle tissue. And as a result of that, if you fast forward the clock and just move one year, two years, three years into the future, all of a sudden you end up with a whole host of metabolic problems and that can become a really big issue. So to answer your question, well, why would you do a plant-based diet? The answer is, it's simple. If you do a plant-based diet, okay, a plant-based diet is an opportunity for you to get very good short-term health. You'll see a lot of the same results that you will on a low-carbohydrate diet, low diet within the first three months, six months, no problem. Weight loss, lower triglyceride, 
lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, lower A1C, lower fasting blood glucose, lower post-meal blood glucose, all of that will happen, no question. But the beauty is that in the long term, you don't see this reversal of all those things. Okay, that stuff continues. If you continue your plant-based approach, if you continue eating a nutrient-dense diet, if you continue keeping your fat intake relatively low, like we recommend, and if you continue keeping your animal product intake uh, low or non-existent at all, then all of these improvements that you see in the short term continue into the long term, and then it becomes an excellent long-term solution that increases your longevity over the course of time. And does all that apply to type 2 diabetes as well? Same. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it applies to, yeah, type 2 and type 1, for no question. And then as you're saying this, I'm thinking like, I've, I've heard these same arguments outside of diabetes conversations when we talk about plant-based first, first paleo or keto. And we talk about, you know, paleo making people look all strong and everything in the short term, but then in the long term, they have all these problems. Are, are the things you're describing, these short-term, long-term benefits and issues, is that specific to diabetics or is this, is this exactly the same mechanism as, as happens to someone who doesn't have diabetes um, and you're just talking about people with diabetes? I mean, do you yeah. see what I'm saying? It's a very similar mechanism. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So <clears throat> the story that I just told you absolutely happens in people living with diabetes, living with pre-existing diabetes, but it also happens in people who have no health diagnosis to begin with or no, no disease diagnosis to begin with. Mm -hmm. okay? And um, there's plenty of research that demonstrates this, right? When you eat a low carbohydrate diet, what you do is you actually are dramatically increasing the total amount of dietary fat, especially the total amount of saturated fat that comes predominantly from animal sources. In addition to that, you're eating more animal protein. In addition to that, you're eating less carbohydrate energy. In addition to that, you're eating less fiber. In addition to that, you're eating less antioxidant, um, antioxidant compounds. So the, the evidence-based research has demonstrated that there's a whole collection of compounds that come from the plant-based world that are uh, not only beneficial, but necessary for optimal health. And those include carbohydrate, fat, and protein, absolutely necessary. But then in addition to that, uh, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals, right? So there's sort of like nine classes, if you will, of nutrients that are absolutely necessary. So when you eat a low carbohydrate diet, what you end up doing is you get a little bit of carbohydrate, small amount, not, not too much to talk about, right? You get a significant amount of fat and a significant amount of protein, okay? So those are the two sort of like predominant macronutrients. And then as far as the micronutrients are concerned, your vitamin intake goes down. Your mineral intake goes down. Your water intake goes down. Your fiber intake goes down dramatically. Your antioxidant intake goes down dramatically. And your micronutrient, I'm sorry, your uh, phytochemical intake goes down dramatically, right? So you're basically cutting out seven of the nine classes of uh, nutrients which are necessary for optimal health. And yet we're expecting that the end result of that is going to be improved longevity. It's, it doesn't make sense, right? Right. right? Interesting. And by the way, I don't think I introduced you as, as Cyrus Kambata PhD, but you are that. And, uh, and you speak like you are that. What, what is your PhD in? Yeah. So my PhD is actually in nutritional biochemistry. Ah, okay. So that, it's like the, the super sense. nerd science of nutrition. <laughs> that, is, that is very nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, before we get into the next question, why don't we pause for a second to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Green Chef is the first USDA-certified organic meal company delivering you fresh, flavorful veggies straight from the farm. Go to greenchef.com slash nomeat125, that's 125, and use code nomeat125 to get $125 off, including free shipping. 
Here's how it works. Green Chef lets you choose from a wide array of easy to follow recipes, perfect for keto, paleo, and plant-powered diets. When your food box arrives, you'll have all the pre-measured, perfectly portioned ingredients all prepped and ready to go. The recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions that take any of the guesswork out of your cooking. Everything is hand-picked, featuring organic veggies and high-quality proteins. Green Chef's vegan and vegetarian recipes are high in plant protein and rich in omega-3s. Matt, it's no secret that we like Green Chef around here. That's right. Anyone, anybody who's going to plan my meals for me and prepare them, I'm, they're a friend of mine. <laughs> That's right. And especially when, they're, when they actually taste, taste really good, right? Exactly. <laughs> Go to greenchef.com slash nomeat125 and use code nomeat125 to get $125 off. That is a pretty sweet deal, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash nomeat125 and use code 125 to get $125 off. This episode is also brought to you by Everlywell. There are certain things in life that are difficult to understand, but knowing how to feel your best shouldn't be one of them. Everly Well can help you learn more about your body so you can finally take control of your health and wellness on your own time. Everly Well offers affordable at-home lab tests that give you trusted physician-reviewed results. Choose from tests including food sensitivity, metabolism, sleep and stress, thyroid, and so much more. Here's how it works. Go to everlywell.com slash no meat and choose your test. Everly Well ships your test straight to your door with everything needed for a simple sample collection. Return the test to a CLIA-certified lab with a prepaid shipping label. Then, your physician-reviewed results and insights are sent to your device in just days. Over 1 million people, including me, have trusted Everlywell with their at-home lab testing. Doug, we had the pleasure of doing some Everlywell tests. I know yours is not conclusive just yet. Um, which, which I, is to well, say it's you not conclusive <laughs> just because I haven't gotten the results back yet. Exactly. <laughs> right. I, I, uh, I didn't do it. We don't no, know what's so, wrong with Doug. We can't decide what's. <laughs> yeah, it's like something is really wrong, but we just can't. We can't quite figure it out. No, I think we both did the uh, the sleep and stress test. Oh, did, did we? we both okay. choose that? You chose that, right? I did yep, as well. I did, yep, I didn't know you did, but good. Um, yeah, I've been. I've talked a lot about sleep issues on this podcast. And so I was super excited to see that they had a sleep and stress one because also recently I've been feeling very stressed and that has impacted my sleep. Uh, so I was kind of curious about what those numbers would look like. Turned out, so I did the test, peed on a on a in a cup and soaked something in the you know saturate the thing in in your pee four times in a day. Uh, really simple thing. Like I don't I'm not into like blood tests that scares me a little bit. Um, so the fact that I could just do urine testing was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, got the results back, and I guess I can't say they were unexpected, but they are not that good. I had my melatonin mm. level, which is like the the hormone most associated with sleep. Yeah, um, it's very high, and it's supposed to be high in the mornings, and then it gradually decreases as the day goes on, and then comes up a little bit again at bedtime. At nighttime, I had undetectable levels of melatonin. It said none, none on there. What? And it came with a disclaimer, <laughs> not a disclaimer, but a little explanation thing that says, uh, you know. You, it basically just means you had such a low level that our test couldn't detect it. Uh, it doesn't. You're not supposed to retest. It's not. It's not likely a problem with the thing. It's just that you don't have any. <laughs> so wow. Yeah. So that has made me really start, you know, looking at things, looking at all kinds of lifestyle changes. And things. But actually, I'm doing. I'm doing a great job with the lifestyle stuff. I think. Uh, so I've actually started supplementing with mel- melatonin again. Not not really on Everly Wells' advice, although they do say that's an option. Um, but in fact, I'm waiting on a couple, in a week from now, I have a, a free webinar that Everly Well offers after you're done, and you can actually ask questions um, of of an expert, you know, who knows about your test in particular. And mm-hmm. so I'm looking forward to that. But uh, but yeah, I've been, I've been taking a little bit of melatonin at nighttime, 
trying to do a alcohol-free IPA that I've been drinking at nighttime as well to help with the sleep. And because uh-huh. uh, apparently alcohol can reduce melatonin levels as well. So anyway, um, working on that. But uh, but yeah, very interesting, and it kind of inspired a, a bunch of uh, you know googling. <laughs> for, <laughs> but it's Which, been uh, but so far know, it's I'm, good. But but that's uh, this is one of those things we talk about this a lot. But just having the ability to kind of understand where you are and what your baseline is allows you to to better interpret how to take care of yourself. Yes, and I really like that they do this webinar thing with it, so that you aren't kind of left on your own. Uh, you know, because I, as I have said before, I, I go on these these go down these rabbit holes, and it's all, it's not always the best thing for me. So the fact that they actually give you some guidance uh, yeah. is really good. For listeners of Nomad Athlete Radio, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash nomeat. That's everlywell.com slash nomeat for 20% off your at-home lab test. All right. With that, let's get back to the episode. So, so I do want to touch on type 2 and the difference between type 2 and type 1 because type 2 is, is not autoimmune and, and it's, it can be reversible. Is that right? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about it. So, so type two affects like, I think the, the most recent statistic is like 92% of the diabetes population around the world has type two diabetes. So it's like the, the majority of the diabetes population, right? And so type one affects, you know, less than 10%. So Robbie and I, okay, fine. We're, we're important. We have like, you know, our own particular stories, but the real story of diabetes is what's happening in people with prediabetes and type two, right? And to answer your question, Doug, um, is type two diabetes reversible? And the answer is yes. And in an overwhelming uh, number, an overwhelming proportion of all people who are living with type two diabetes, it's a reversible condition. But um, what's important to understand whether or not you're trying to determine whether or not you can truly reverse type two diabetes using your food as medicine, using your diet as your primary tool, is you have to also know how much damage the beta cells inside of your pancreas have experienced over the course of time. So without getting too technical, we'll just basically say that if you've been living with type 2 diabetes for, you know, call it, I don't know, three years, five years, 10 years or so, chances are the amount of damage that's happening inside of your pancreas is still overcomable, if that's a word. Okay. And if you switch over to a plant-based diet, the way that we describe, lower your total fat intake, lower your animal product intake, and really eat as many plants as you possibly can, what we see most of the time and what the research suggests is that most of the time you can reverse type two diabetes. But then there's a small proportion of the population for, for whom they've experienced a significant amount of damage to those beta cells, those same beta cells that Robbie and I don't have anymore. And if there's a significant amount of damage that's happened to those beta cells, then it becomes harder and harder for those people to use diet only to reverse type two diabetes. And usually what they end up having to do is change their diet, no question. But then in addition to that, they also sometimes have to inject small amounts of insulin in order to control their blood glucose with precision. Now, Doug, here's the thing I would like to add here. So I appreciate Cyrus acknowledging that we're important too. Thank you, Cyrus. Appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, I'm here for you. And, and part of it, it's, it's our own like personal story that led us both to discover this research independently and then come together, which is that if you're living with any form of insulin-dependent diabetes, so Cyrus and I, we inject the long-acting insulin and the short-acting insulin that, uh, that he just, Cyrus just described. We, we inject both. So because we're doing that, we can easily monitor on a meal-by-meal basis what lifestyle decisions make us more insulin-sensitive or more insulin-resistant. 
And our entire platform and everything that we're going to be talking about in the Blood Sugar Revolution Summit is all about reversing insulin resistance. That, that is the topic to talk. And that applies for everybody listening to this. Even if you haven't been diagnosed with prediabetes, uh, there's estimates that 90% of the population is insulin resistant. That comes first. So we have this experience. Okay, we make these lifestyle changes and we see that what we're doing is making the insulin we inject far more effective. And it's that led us to go look at the research, but like, wait a minute, like what's going on? Are we, is this, is this known about? Are we unique? Like what's happening? And so that experience that we literally have every single day, every single time we eat food, like reinforced with this teaching is the actual solution to most people living with type two diabetes, just like Sarah said. So if you're living with type two and you're producing plenty of insulin, the only thing you have to tell yourself is what do I do to make that insulin work more efficiently? And I can get rid of type two diabetes in the vast majority of cases. For prediabetes, you've caught it so early that you can get rid of diabetes 100% of the time. You just have to make your own insulin work more efficiently. And that's how we developed the mastering diabetes method and put it all together. And now we're trying to get that out to as many people as possible. So I'm sure there's some secrets that we can't reveal without, without getting into the book or the summit, but what's, in sort of broad strokes, like what version of a plant-based diet is, is the one that you guys choose and, and, uh, you know, teach as, as far as reversing diabetes. Uh, I'm guessing it's not a high fat version based on conversations we've had before. Is it, is it the, the kind of chef AJ, you know, super high carb, very, very low fat, extremely low fat, um, or like fruitarian type thing. Robbie, I know you're kind of a fruit nut, I believe. (laughs) Uh, so I'm just curious about that. It's a great question. And it's funny, yesterday I was just walking down the street and I was thinking about this. I was like, hey, if we're, if we're talking to people like trying to explain what we do here, like, because what we do, it is even different than, you know, many of the most popular plant-based diets, even you know, the Forks Over Knives version um, or, you know, a Joel Furman version. Like we have a little bit of a, uh, some key differences, which are very important for people who are looking to truly reverse insulin resistance. And on this walk, Matt, I can't say I actually came up with the exact words. I'm still trying to figure it out. But it's, it's a very, um, I think what I came up with is our diet is highly unrefined, highly unrefined. Like we really, really focus on having whole foods in their intact form. And that's how we developed a simple traffic light system. So you have green light foods, yellow light foods, and red light foods. And, you know, similar to what you're saying with Chef AJ, um, it it is very high in carbohydrate um, and particularly low in fat. But there is an emphasis on making sure you do get the appropriate amount of fat that you need. And that comes when focusing on whole foods. So the green light category has fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, intact whole grains. Okay. Those are the first four categories. Then there's leafy greens, non-starchy vegetables, Herbs and uh, spices and mushrooms are also listed in there. But the order is very particular. So we are teaching people to make sure you get enough of these plant-based foods because the number one mistake people make when transitioning to a plant-based diet is they don't eat enough calories. They start eating a lot of salads, a lot of carrots, a lot of vegetables, but they get hungry an hour or so after a meal. They're like, oh, wow, like I didn't get enough protein. This diet isn't satisfying. I have to go eat a cheeseburger. All of a sudden they feel better. They get more energy because they got more calories. So people come to us, you know, they're afraid, like Cyrus was describing earlier, they're afraid to eat carbohydrate-rich foods. And that's a complete mistake. Uh, It's a misunderstanding of what's actually causing the blood glucose elevations. 
And so once you understand, okay, no, I got to embrace those foods. You have to learn to eat a large volume to stay satisfied and, and really enjoy the diet long-term. So that's the green light. And the green light category is all whole foods. Nothing is refined in any way, shape, or form. The only thing that would be technically refined is the fact that some things are cooked and you might've removed the water content. But other than that, it's whole foods. No flour, no, no flour. So that's not in the green light category. Okay, it's okay. so a great okay. question. So now we move into the yellow light category. And these are foods that we're suggesting that people, they absolutely eat, they include in their, in their program, but you just have to be cognizant of how much you're consuming if you want to truly maximize your insulin sensitivity. So green light, it's almost impossible to overeat on those foods. So much water, so much fiber. If you eat when you're hungry till you're satisfied, it's very difficult to eat too much. But the yellow light category, these are foods that are either higher in their fat content or they're just a little bit more refined. So the higher fat foods would be nuts and seeds, avocado, soy products are in there, coconut meat would be in there, olives would be in there, durian is a high fat fruit. So the worst fruit also. <laughs> that's debatable. <laughs> um, so those are all great foods, very healthy. A lot of research showing the benefits of those foods. We're just saying you have to be careful of how much you're consuming. If you, you can't just sit down and watch a movie and snack on cashews and expect to manage your blood glucose in, in the ideal way. It's just not going to work. And then the more refined foods, that would be things like, you know, brown rice pasta or pasta is being made out of beans these days or Ezekiel bread, like a really clean, you know, or a millet bread. These are good foods. Certainly can be a part of your program, but it's not as ideal as consuming the whole intact form that those foods were made from. So it's better to have millet than millet bread, especially if you're looking to lose weight, which happens for a lot of people with prediabetes and type two. So the calorie density of the millet is going to be much more favorable to you losing weight than consuming millet bread. So that's the yellow light category. And the red light category, these are foods we're suggesting people minimize or avoid completely. These are the foods that are known to cause insulin resistance, are known to make you more insulin resistant. And that's going to be animal products. So you have red meat, white meat, uh, fish in there. Um, then we have oils in that category, all oils. And of course, any processed food. So whether a Twinkie, obviously that's going to be in the red light category. But again, if you're trying to optimize your insulin sensitivity, uh, some of these more processed meat analogs are not going to serve you well. We're going to put that in the red light category, minimize or avoid completely. And so we have this simple traffic light system um, and really teaching people to feel confident and um, really understand that focusing on the green light category, you will get all the nutrients you need, the protein, um, you know, the fiber, you're going to get that plenty of essential fatty acids. We have an insurance policy of, you know, a ground tablespoon of chia seeds or flaxseed each day to ensure you're getting your alpha-linolenic acid. Mm. So, uh, that's really how the program works. It's very simple. We really try and make this simple and not overcomplicate people's lives. Can you go back to the fruit a little bit? Because I think when people hear that as a green light food there, you know, as you, I'm sure hear all the time, it just doesn't seem like it should be, uh, just because yeah. the, you know, the, the, teaching that sort of is ingrained in everyone's head that fruit is, first of all, that fruit is bad, perhaps. Absolutely. Uh, like, is it, are any fruits totally fine as long as they're whole? Like, or do you think, care about like glycemic index and all that stuff? Or you, is it just, if it's whole, it's good? No. So we wrote about this in our book for sure. So like you said, we can't give away all the secrets, Matt. You can <laughs> register for the summer, you can pick up the book. <laughs> yeah, so wait, where, if you want to do the summer, where, where can they go to, to do that? Is that? Bloodsugarrevolution.com. 
Okay. And that, that's free thing, right? You just get totally all, the free. all the stuff or whatever. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so just a quick thing on the summit. Yeah. Um, basically we, we run a summit every single year. And um, the purpose of the summit is to basically educate people all around the world about things that they can do to dramatically improve their blood glucose health or their, their blood sugar control uh, using their food as medicine. And so we, we interview this year, we interviewed 21 uh, physicians and researchers and New York Times bestselling authors um, to um, really understand how, you know, what are their insights on how to control blood glucose and, you know, control all the tentacles related to uh, diabetes as well. And so that summit is running from November 3rd to November 10th of this year, um, which is just in a little bit here. So if anybody's interested, go to the bloodsugarrevolution.com and you can register directly there. 100% free. 100% free. Like yes, it's, it's, you don't want to miss this. Okay. So register, but um, just so people know also Matt, they can buy the book and uh, they can get that anywhere. <laughs> Page two twenty. That's not a full scoop. That one's not free. Actually, I take Doug back. It could be free because if you go to Audible and you've never created an Audible account, you can get the audiobook. Your first credit is free, and we read the book and we added some extra material in the audiobook. Some actually new research that came out like before the book was you know had to be printed and all that stuff, or after Mm -hmm. the book was printed. So the audiobook is is quite fun. But you also Doug, you can get it for free if you go to your library. Hey, so, okay, you know, there you go. All right, so there we go. There you go. I like but, it. Doug, Doug, you should be a, I think you were a local library supporter. Given all <laughs> I am. I don't know why I didn't think of that. You know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> um, but in short, uh, the answer is long-term, as you're transitioning, you become more insulin sensitive. All the whole fruits should be just fine. It shouldn't be a problem. You should have no problem consuming them. There are some nuances. If you're living with insulin-dependent diabetes, how do you dose for these fruits? But if you're living with pre-diabetes, Type two, you have plenty of insulin production. You should not have to even think about how much you're eating of any of the whole fruits. And that's because whole fruit is a heck of a lot different than the refined sugars that you might hear about in the research. You're having all the water, all the fiber in this particular package, all the the nutrients in a package that digests differently. And of course, we're teaching people to eat fruit in a low fat environment. So we understand where the confusion is coming from. And if you're living with some form of diabetes and, and you are able to test your own blood glucose and you have an experience where you ate a mango, you ate a banana and you test yourself and you saw, oh, wow, I'm 200 or 250. It, it's logical to be like, wow, like the fruit caused my blood glucose to go high. I shouldn't eat the fruit. The fruit's the problem. But that person just hasn't had the opportunity to get educated and understand that it's actually the underlying issue of insulin resistance which made their body unable to metabolize the glucose in the fruit and that it was actually the high fat diet they've been eating previously that led to the insulin resistance. So that's really what's happening. And as you become insulin sensitive, you do not have to worry about fruits. And the glycemic index is, is very misleading. It doesn't factor in nutrient density of foods. It doesn't factor in the, the fat consumption that people had previously. And so we're not suggesting that people get worried about um, the glycemic index of any given food. So you mentioned fat there. Um, is it, and earlier Cyrus mentioned that, that it's sort of either high fat or high carb is, you know, is an approach for short-term management or treatment. Um, is, and this is, I've heard this sort of thing with weight loss as well, that like you can, you can be really low carb or really low fat and you can lose weight. Uh, 
is there something about having both at the same time that, that sort of makes everything go wrong? Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal question. I'm actually glad that you brought that up because <clears throat> I think that's one of the most misunderstood concepts in the world of, you know, nutrition. And it can get easily twisted to make you think that like, you know, there's multiple solutions and or you're doing something wrong, you know. But the truth is that if you look at like the actual biochemistry of uh, lipids, which are things that are fat soluble, and then um, things that are not fat soluble, the answer, the, what, what you'll find is that those two types of nutrients have a very difficult time interacting with each other. And the fact that it was sort of like, they're like two opposing magnets that just like absolutely hate each other. So hmm. carbohydrate and fatty acids are just that. The carbohydrate is water soluble, meaning that it dissolves in water very easily. Fatty acids are fat soluble, meaning that they, they dissolve in lipids easily and they find home in lipids easily. So when your diet contains a significant amount of carbohydrate energy and a significant amount of fat energy, what ends up happening is it creates a whole cascade of metabolic traffic jams inside of your liver, inside of your muscle, inside of your blood vessels at the same time. And a lot of it is due to the fact that the entire machinery that's responsible for uh, digesting and transporting and uptaking and oxidizing and storing carbohydrates is completely different, completely different than the machinery, the enzymatic machinery that's required to digest and transport and uptake and store and oxidize lipids. And so what happens is that if you, the reason why both of these work, meaning the reason why you can eat a low fat diet and get good results, or you can eat a low carbohydrate diet and get good results is because one of those two is kept low while the other one is the predominant fuel source, right? So in the low carbohydrate scenario, you are eating a small amount of carbohydrate and eating a significant amount of fat. And what you're doing is you're but it, internally, you're suppressing your carbohydrate metabolism enzymes inside of your liver, your muscle, your kidney, your blood vessels, your brain, you name it. And so as a result of that, the fat metabolism enzymes in that whole symphony is now being used as your primary uh, energy source. On the flip side, when you increase your carbohydrate intake and lower your fat intake, now you're relying on those carbohydrate enzymes to perform their symphony and you're sort of inhibiting all of the, the lipid enzymes at the same time, right? So, you know, going in either direction is going to get you some metabolic benefit. The problem is the standard American diet. The problem is when you try and eat both of them at the same time. And what you're doing is you're basically saying, hey, liver, I want you to uptake and process and store and oxidize all of these carbohydrates. And simultaneously, I want you to do it with lipids. And your liver's like, come on. Like from a biological perspective, I can't do both of those at the same time efficiently. I can do both of them but it's going to cause a whole cascade of metabolic issues. And your kidney says the same thing. And your pancreas says the same thing. And your muscle says the same thing. So that's why when the two of them are present in high concentrations, the whole show shuts down. Which is why it's necessary to sort of like play the game where you're sort of tipping the side towards carbohydrate, tipping the side towards fat. And we talked about the fact that when you're eating a more animal-based diet, when you're eating a higher fat intake, you end up with good short-term results, but crappier long-term results. All right, and then what about the what about sports? I, I believe you guys both are athletic types, right? right. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, so type one diabetes has not kept you from from those pursuits at all. No, Absolutely not. Right. Definitely not. So, have you 
I mean, like, you know, like everyone, every athlete who's kind of serious, halfway serious thinks about sugar and think about, you know, immediately post-workout or pre-workout, they're in some way managing their blood sugar levels, even if they're not calling it that. Have you guys developed or kind of, because you monitor so much, like, have you learned anything interesting about post-workout fueling and things that, you know, maybe someone else hadn't noticed or things that are maybe are kind of common knowledge, but you actually observe it uh, because of the the monitoring you do? A hundred percent. Yeah. There's, there's actually a whole, we could write a whole book on like the, interesting insights that happen in people who are athletic um, as it relates to blood glucose management. And and one of the things that frustrates me is that when you go onto the the internet and you look at the blogosphere and you look at Google um, and people are suggesting that the only way to control your blood sugar is to eat a low carbohydrate diet, even if you're an an active individual, it just, it just frustrates me. It really does because the the biochemistry is just not right. Okay. Mm. So, um, Without going into like, you know, a three hour long discussion here, uh, there's, there's a couple of things that are very w- worth noting. Number one, glycogen, glycogen, glycogen. Okay. Glycogen is the storage form of glucose in your liver and in your muscles. Okay. Glycogen is a fuel. Glycogen is a storage form of glucose and glucose is the fuel, right? So athletes, when they perform specifically higher intensity exercise, are more reliant on glycogen for fuel than athletes who perform low intensity exercise over a long period of time. But both types of athletes, whether you're at high intensity or lower intensity, are using glycogen every single moment of their athletic uh, endeavor. So whether you're doing a high intensity interval training class or whether you're running a marathon, uh, you are burning glycogen 100% of the time. There's no questions asked. Okay? Even if you're like a fat adapted type runner who's burning some fat? Yeah. So that's the thing is that um, what most people think is that, you know, whether you're burning fat or whether you're burning glucose, it's either like, it's like binary. It's like a Uh light switch. You either like burn fat or you burn glucose. The answer is that's not true. The answer is that you're burning, uh, you're burning glucose or sorry, I shouldn't say burning. You're oxidizing glucose and you're oxidizing fatty acids at all times. Like you're doing it right now at rest inside of your muscle tissue and inside of your liver. And so am I. And so is Robbie. So is Doug. Right. But if you were to pick up and you were to just like start running, then the, the, you, what your muscles would do is they would change how much fuel they're using from each one of those depots, right? So if you went on a long endurance run, you might use a higher proportion of fatty acids that are present inside of your muscle tissue and that are coming out of your adipose tissue and a little bit less glycogen, right? If you were to increase your speed and start running and you were going to go a little bit more anaerobic, then all of a sudden your fat utilization would go down and your glucose utilization would go up. Right. So it's like these things are being burned at all times. It's just a question of like, which one is being burned at a higher rate than the other ones. So point being is that glycogen is very important. It's important for all athletes. And there's this common wisdom that, um, if you, there's this, let me put it this way. There's a lot of athletes who don't think about their glycogen stores and they don't care about their glycogen stores. The only time they, they think about it, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot yourself, Matt, is like the day before a race or mm-hmm. like two days before a race where they're like, I'm going to go eat a giant meal of pasta because I'm going to carb load. And then that's going to give me the, it's going to increase my glycogen store. So that way I'll have more energy on the day of my marathon. Right. And the research actually shows that carbohydrate loading does work, right? In other words, like if you're eating a normal carbohydrate intake for a long period of time, 
and then you have one big meal that contains a lot of carbohydrate energy, you're going to manufacture just a little bit more glycogen from that meal than you did on your previous diet. But what if I were to tell you that you could glycogen load or carb load every single meal, right? What if you could carb load for breakfast and then do it again for lunch and then do it again for dinner? And then you did that tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, right? What that would happen, what would happen is that your glycogen stores would increase by like 2%, 3%, 5% over the course of time. And then before you know it, now all of a sudden your glycogen stores have become significantly larger than they were two to three weeks ago, right? So eating a plant-based diet and eating a diet that contains a significant amount of carbohydrate is a way of chronically carb adapting or chronically carb loading. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, athletes are obsessed with protein. Okay. Whether you're a strength athlete and you just want more mass, more muscle protein, or whether you are an endurance athlete and you want stronger muscle tissue that's more resilient and you know has higher endurance. Everybody wants either more uh, protein, uh, more muscle protein, or they don't want to lose any of their existing muscle protein, right? But what I think a lot of athletes don't understand is that in order to manufacture protein, there's a couple, there's, there's many things that have to happen. Number one, there has to be an adequate amount of protein in your diet, an adequate amount of amino acids that are coming in from the food that you're consuming on a daily basis. But in addition to that, there also has to be an adequate carbohydrate content as well, because when your carbohydrate content is significant, it is high, not only are you able to store glycogen, but that is the signal for insulin utilization, for insulin production and utilization. Insulin is a very strong protein manufacturing signal. So if you're consuming a significant amount of carbohydrate, then the amount of insulin in your blood is going to go up just enough to stimulate what's called net muscle protein synthesis in the post in the, in the recovery state, right? So in other words, if I were to take two groups of athletes and I were to say athlete group number one is eating a high protein, low carb recovery meal versus group number two, that's eating a high protein, medium carbohydrate recovery meal the group that's eating a medium carbohydrate is actually going to end up producing more net muscle protein synthesis in the post-recovery, in, in the recovery state, because that, that carbohydrate energy is actually stimulating insulin to help the, muscle, the, uh, the, the protein synthesis machinery. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. And actually agrees with the, uh, I think people would find it sort of uh, counterintuitive that, that when you look at the guidelines of how much carbohydrate, the carbohydrate to protein ratios you should be eating pre, during, post-workout, you know, it kind of varies depending on who you ask, but in general, there's this trend to be about around three to one before workout and five to one carbohydrate to protein after workout. So actually more carbohydrate relative to protein after workout than before. Yes. Uh, and that kind of, kind of goes along with that. So that's actually really interesting. Yep. Absolutely um, right. Now, so, Matt, this is a fascinating conversation. And what I got to do, I actually have to um, get an Uber and get an airplane. <laughs> I got to head to a baby shower. So I'm going to go carb load um, at each meal for the rest of the day. And tomorrow <laughs> on the next, I'm gonna eat some bananas. I'm gonna eat some papaya. You guys have fun and I'll catch you on the next one. All right. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Robbie. Safe travels. See ya. <laughs> Thank you. All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, I guess just to put it into, into practical terms and then we'll wrap up anyway, pretty soon. Um, what, uh, like what, what, what kind of things would you suggest someone eat post-workout just from, from this perspective? Like what's a, what's a typical post-workout meal that you or Robbie would eat? 
Okay, cool. So post-workout meal, uh, usually what I recommend, there's like many ways to slice it. So if you enjoy eating fruit, which uh, I personally do, um, eating a massive fruit bowl, when I say massive, I really do mean massive, right? Uh, eating a massive fruit bowl that contains something like, I don't know, anywhere between 600 and 1,000 calories coming predominantly from fruit, right? So that might include something like four bananas, um, maybe like one or two papayas, one or two mangoes, um, some fresh berries on top. And then maybe you want to sprinkle on some like some flax seeds or some, you know, some flavor addition, some cocoa powder on top of that, right? So that bowl right there contains, you know, seven, eight, nine servings of fruit. And that may sound like an absurd amount of fruit to be eating at one meal. But um, what I have found personally, and I've also, you know, talked about this with other many other athletes, is that when they're eating a predominantly fruit based recovery meal, they actually find that their recovery times uh, shorten significantly. So, you know, if you're used to sort of, you know, taking 24 hours to recover between, you know, pretty decent sized uh, efforts, um, when you're eating a predominantly fruit based meal afterwards, um, that recovery time can go from like 24 hours down to like 16 hours. Sometimes I find that it goes down as, as low as like 12 hours, which enables me to push harder and more so that I can work out even more, um, you know, and get more out of my workouts. Um, another thing that, you know, I recommend people to do is, uh, make a smoothie. Okay. Cause a smoothie is an, another way where you can add a protein powder, right? Whether it's the complement protein powder or whether it's a different protein powder that comes either from like hemp or pea protein. Those are my two favorites, right? So you can take the fruits that I just described. You can throw them into a blender. You can add some protein powder into that bad boy and up your protein content on that particular meal. Okay. Another option would be to eat, uh, legumes. Okay. Legumes and a starchy vegetable. So the legumes are going to come either from like beans, peas, or lentils, right? And then the starchy vegetable will come from things like potatoes or squash or corn, right? So if you have some combination of the two of those, then you, you're getting a significant amount of carbohydrate energy from the starchy vegetables. And then you're getting a slightly higher protein content from the legumes as well, right? So, you know, a, a meal that I love to eat sometimes after I'm done working out is like, the largest bowl of chickpeas I can possibly find. <laughs> right. And then, you know, in addition to that, I might have some like roasted potatoes to come along with it, or I might even have some fruit to come along with that because there I'm getting, you know, both the carbohydrate as well as the protein content at the same time. What I'm curious, what do you, what do you choose to eat after a workout? The thing that I most want usually is fruit. Like that's kind of just what I tend to do. Um, it's not really a conscious choice. I mean, I know it's a healthy thing, so it's not like I'm, I'm <clears throat> um, afraid of it by any means. Uh, but, you know, if I've got mangoes or watermelon around, that's what I will typically want to eat when I'm done working out. Uh, I'm also really into like, I, if it's a longer run, I tend to be craving salty things. So like a bowl of rice with soy sauce on it or something, to me, right. that, would be, uh, that would be relatively delicious as well. What about you, I remember you told us that when we interviewed yeah, last so. time and I was like, Oh, white rice and soy sauce. That's actually, it's very tasty. I used to like end runs near a grocery store and I would, this is in the very old days, maybe even before nobody athlete. And I would just go into the store. It's all sweaty and terrible and buy like a loaf of white bread baguette that they had made and just eat the entire thing. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. But I yeah. Very tasty. yeah I, I turned to the smoothie basically after every, every run, uh, you know, do a smoothie with some protein powder and, um, you know, that's, it just, like you said, craving the fruit, it, you know, just kind of fulfills that. And then also it's just really easy way to get a bunch of calories in. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I really like burritos, you know, basically all the time. So, you know, but, but especially after like a really long run or something like that. Uh, so beans and, and brown rice and, 
and you know and some sort of tortilla yeah i mean you you really can't go wrong with that and i think there's also this misconception that like if you choose to eat kind of like the same foods over and over and over again that you somehow you're going to develop a nutrient uh you're going to become deprived of particular nutrients right or there's the other one that like if you don't if you're eating white rice um, you have to eat beans with that same meal. Otherwise, you're not going to get a full array of amino acids. And then you're going to become essential amino acid deprived, right? You have to protein combined, which is, has been disproven by science as well, right? So I, I like the fact that you guys are sort of like gravitating towards the same meals. I do the exact same thing. And I think that's what most people should become comfortable with because there's so many nutrients available when you're eating a nutrient-dense diet from plant-based foods that this idea that I'm going to become nutrient deprived actually doesn't really exist. Yeah. And are smoothies a vague green light for you guys? Like, is it okay to process the fruit in that way? Just blend it up? Great question. Uh, technically speaking, a smoothie is going to be like in the yellow light category. And the only okay. reason for that is because uh, when you're drinking a smoothie, uh, the, because it's like pre-processed by the actual blender, mm-hmm. um, the glucose from the carbohydrate just gets into your blood a little bit faster than it would if you were just chewing it with your, with your teeth, right? Right. So, so that massive people, bowl of, of fruit would be the green light version of that? Bingo. Exactly right. It's okay. the same stuff, but you either like don't process it and it's green light or you slightly process it with a blender and it turns yellow light. But you I mean, you, you see me drinking a smoothie literally like at the beginning of this podcast, I drink a smoothie pretty much every single day. And I just make it a point to do two things. Number one, if you're living with some form of diabetes and your glucose is, you know, you try and you control that. Number one, target a smoothie for the post-workout state when there's a significant amount of what's called non-insulin dependent glucose uptake. Fancy way of saying you can get more glucose into your muscles for free after a workout than you can before a workout, right? That's the first thing. So target the smoothie after your workout. And then secondarily, just drink it kind of slow. That's it. Don't gulp the whole thing down. Take 30 minutes to drink it rather than five and you should control your blood glucose nicely. So awesome. I, don't, I don't mean to put Matt uh, kind of in the hot seat here, but um, he's been, he's been uh, flirting with this, uh, a lot of like fruit juicing or, or vegetable and fruit juicing, right? Matt, am I? Almost entirely vegetable juice. I, I okay, almost put almost nothing. I only put a tiny bit of apple in there to, to sweeten it, but like a quarter of a tiny apple. Yeah. So, so what, uh, you know, where does that kind of fall into the, into the red light, green light categories? Great let, me, let, me, let, me, let me preface this quickly. I recently dug, not not recently, a few weeks ago, I did a sort of analysis. I was putting all these beets and carrots and cucumber and celery and lemon, all this stuff. But I, and I figured out how much actual, because I figured the vegetables were like, you know, free, like there's no sugar in those things. Well, I, I looked at it and I was eating like a triple size version of a normal juice. I think I was having like 36 ounces of juice mm-hmm. and it would have all these things. And like every beet would have six grams of sugar and the carrots would each have I don't know, three or something that I was juicing. So like the amount of sugar in this juice I was having was something like I don't know, 30 or 40 grams of sugar uh, without the fiber and things that come with it. So even without the putting a lot of fruit in there, you can still create a lot of sugar in a juice. So I adjusted it after that and kind of stopped putting the beets in, not to mention they were expensive. Uh, but anyway, so I, I made a lower sugar version that I've been doing recently. Got it. Okay. So the, the one recommendation I would say is um, rather than use the word sugar. So like on the, on the side of a, um, like the nutrition facts label of many of the foods that we consume in the grocery store or we get from the grocery store, it says like sugars. And then it lists the, 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 you know, the amount of effectively what it's listing is the amount of glucose and fructose that's present inside of the food that you're consuming. Right. 
the, the problem with using the word sugar is that from a biological perspective, it's an accurate term to use the word sugar because glucose is a sugar. Fructose is a sugar. Lactose is a sugar. All of these things that end in os are sugars. There's no question about it. But what we've done as a society is we call sugar the, the white crystal that comes in a box, right? That, the actual sucrose, right? And we know through lots and lots and lots of research and programming that like sugar in a white crystal is not good for you and that it will cause many metabolic problems over the course of time. So people, as a society, we've come to learn sugar equals bad. Don't eat sugar, right? But from a biological perspective, the sugar that, we're, that you should be eating is actually foods that contain glucose and foods that contain fructose naturally, right? So what I, because it's become a little bit complex, what I tell people is when you're talking about carbohydrates, try not to use the word sugar. And instead of using that word, use the word glucose because glucose is actually what your brain uses as a fuel. It's actually what your muscle uses. It's actually what your liver uses as a fuel. And that's the prized fuel that we're looking for from food, right? So just like you're saying, um, Matt, is that when you made that vegetable juice and you added beets and you added carrots, you found that the, you know, quote unquote sugar content, what I would, I would modify that and say the glucose content went up. Mm. And that's actually not necessarily a bad thing because again, the glucose is fuel for your muscles. And if you're drinking it in the post-workout state, as an example, mm -hmm. that glucose literally can get like almost a free ride directly back into the muscle from that you used during the workout, which is good because it goes in to store more glycogen for the next time. Hmm. Okay. So even though the fiber is removed and it's not the whole fruit by any means, that fruit juice, especially in post-workout state, but maybe even, maybe in other times, that could be an all right thing to have sometimes. Yeah, but I, I like your strategy, which is that, you know, make it predominantly vegetable juice mm -hmm. with like a little bit of an addition of a fruit. It's not, it's not the end of the world, right? You're going to add a little bit of an apple. You're going to add some orange. You're going to add some beets. You're going to add some other vegetables that have a higher glucose content. It's not a big deal. Contrast that versus if you told me that you were drinking a juice that was, you know, two oranges, two apples, and a pineapple with like a little bit of celery, I might be like, hold on a second. Now you're just getting a very large glucose load with effectively zero fiber, right? So that could cause problems down the road. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Very interesting. I wish we could go on for hours, Cyrus. This is really, I mean, obviously you have a ton of knowledge about this kind of stuff. And I think uh, I could learn a ton by, by talking a bit. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we got to cut it off here though. We're at the hour mark. Um, but please, to get more information, obviously there's masteringdiabetes.org, which is your guys' site, and then get the book Mastering Diabetes, which is an amazing, great book. Uh, you absolutely should check that out. Um, and then, of course, the summit, which is coming up very soon. Correct. Uh, you said bloodsugarrevolution.com. Is that right? That's exactly right. Bloodsugarrevolution.com, and it's going to go live from November 3rd to November 10th of this year of uh, 2021. So uh, just go straight to that website, and you can, uh, you know, if it's interesting to you, what we're going to be talking about is basically how to control your blood sugar and, you know, or your blood glucose, whatever you want to call it. And it, you do not have to have diabetes in order to participate. That's the key. Okay. There's a lot of people who are like, Oh, I don't have diabetes. I'm, this is not pertinent to me, but the answer is actually it is because we're teaching you diabetes prevention strategies as well as diabetes management and diabetes reversal strategies at the same time. So all three can be, um, you can learn about all three of those by participating. Cool. Lots of experts, New York Times bestsellers like Cyrus, PhDs like Cyrus, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, lots of good stuff. BloodSugarRevolution.com. Check right. it out. 
Cyrus, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, please, please extend a thank you to Robbie as well. You guys rock. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Doug. Uh, I had a pleasure. I had a lot of fun and uh, I appreciate it. All right. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks for coming on. Talk to you later. Okay, bye.